Please rise with me, if you're able, while we read the scripture together. I'll be uh, reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 6, uh, beginning at verse 1. If the first four verses sound very familiar, that's because Brandon just read them during the baptism. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried there with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we who have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let us let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as sin to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word. Please be seated. Thank you, Gary. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open, if you will, to uh, Romans chapter 6. We'll be looking at this text together this morning, and if, let's pray together and ask God to meet us as we open his word and seek to listen to him. Gracious Father, uh, what an incredible privilege it is to gather in your presence by your grace and hear a word from you. And Lord, that's our prayer this morning for this time, that your voice would speak from your scriptures and that your spirit would take what you are saying and apply it to our lives. Lord, would you meet us? Would you... Meet us wherever we are, whatever questions or burdens or frustrations or delights that we carry in with us this morning. Would you meet us and would you apply your grace to us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a junior in college, I experienced an important rite of passage as the college experience goes. I moved out of the dorms into an off-campus apartment with three friends. It was the proverbial bachelor pad, if you will. 
Even though once we divided the rent and utilities up amongst the four of us, it still only cost us about $162 a month to live there, we still kept the thermostat ridiculously low in the winter so as to save money. So low that one of my roommates bought Carissa a blanket for when she would come over and visit so that she would stop complaining about how cold it was in the apartment. And, you know, the decorum was pretty sweet as well. We were proud of it. Uh, one of my, another roommate's cousin had shot a, uh, an 11-point buck on a hunting trip and had it mounted. And it was too big, and, and, and he, he had no permission to, to hang it or display it in his dorm room, so he let us display it in our living room. And, I mean, the living room was not that big, and so it was definitely the dominant feature of of the living room at our next apartment my another roommate well, one of the same roommates and I decorated our living room in burlap coffee bags that's what we had all over the walls I still have some of those coffee bags but if you've been to our home in Natick and sat in our living room you know that there are no coffee bags on our walls no big game trophies displayed prominently over the fireplace. Instead, you'll see a little metal heart hanging there and some prints of Monet and some family pictures. When a man gets married, life changes. Your allotted closet space goes from, you know, this to about this. Sorry, hon. It's just true. It's true. Your sheets have to be washed more than once a quarter. And you're not allowed to play the kind of passive-aggressive who's going to do the dishes game. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but it's where you just kind of pretend you don't see the pile of dishes growing in the sink until someone goes for a fork or a cup or something and it's not there and then they're it. They have to do the dishes now. That doesn't work anymore. When, when a man gets married, life changes. And that's a good thing. Not only because some of us could use a little domesticating, but because when we get married, our very identity changes. We are no longer who we once were. We are somebody new, somebody different. And that means that we should act like we're married, not like we're still single. I mean, how odd would it be if, you know, after their ceremony, a newlywed couple simply went back to their own apartments and carried on with life as it was beforehand, instead of moving in together and sharing life together and so on. And, and life is full of these kinds of identity transitions. You know, we transition from being a student to being a graduate. From being a child to being an adult. From being a parent to an empty nester. Or from being a spouse to a widow. And with each transition in who we are, there comes a necessary change in how we live. Again, how, how odd would it be if, you know, having graduated from high school, you showed up next fall at the high school ready for classes again. That was the right thing to do a year ago. It's not the right thing to do anymore because you're not 
the same person. Your identity has changed. You're no longer a student. Or, or for a cancer survivor to, to continue taking chemo even though they've been declared you know, free and clear and cured by their doctor. When your identity changes, your behavior needs to follow suit to the new reality of who you are. But the most important change in identity that we experience in life, the identity that in fact trumps every other identity in our lives and gives significance and meaning to them, is the identity change that happens when someone is united with Jesus Christ. Now, if you're just joining us, we began a series a few weeks ago uh, asking the question, what difference does the gospel, the good news of Jesus, make for everyday life? And we started by kind of laying a foundation of what the gospel is. What are we talking about when we use that word? How it's the good news of what God has done to establish his kingdom and to deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. In the, in the power of the Spirit. And, and last week we looked at the centrality of grace. Of grace. That we are accepted by God not because of something we do, but because of what Christ has done for us. We deserve God's punishment for our sin. That's, that's what we deserve. But God in His grace forgives us and cleanses us and and makes us his children through faith in Jesus. He gives us something incredibly wonderful, even though we deserve something utterly terrible. That's grace. And, and we talked about how the Christian life is not merely one that begins by grace, and then it's up to me from, from that point on, but it's one that grows by grace at every stage as well. That God's grace is sufficient for every facet of the Christian life. No, Anything God calls you to do, any life experience you walk through, God's grace is sufficient. As Paul puts it in Romans 5, through Jesus, grace now reigns over our entire lives. It rules over us. Or to quote Jerry Bridges, as we did last week, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And so grace reigns wherever you are. And applying the gospel to our lives is a matter of applying God's grace in Jesus to our lives. But when we make such a big deal of grace, there's always a subtle temptation to then exploit that grace as an opportunity to continue in sin. Won't God forgive anyway? I mean, if he accepts me, because of, not because of what I do, but because of what Jesus did for me, then I'm covered, right? If I go and do this? In fact, if the greater the sin, the greater the display of God's amazing grace... Why not you know, indulge a little bit and make his grace look even better than it already does? Well, Paul anticipates this kind of thinking, and he counters it in our passage this morning in Romans 6. 
but he does so not by backtracking on the centrality of grace. He does so instead by reminding Christians who you are because of that grace. That because you've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, you are not who you once were. You're a new creation. Your identity has changed. And therefore, your behavior ought to follow suit. You cannot continue in sin, but you must live in step with the truth of who you are now in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul wants to get across in this passage. And and the way he tries to get that point across is first by reminding us of the reality of our union with Christ in verses 1 through 4. So something really has changed for the Christian in who you are. And then he explains exactly what that change is. What is it that has happened through our union with Jesus? The results of being united with Christ. And that's verses 5 through 10. And then he tells us what to do about it. How do we respond to the truth of who we are in Jesus? The, our response to our union with Christ. And that's verses 11 through 14. So look first with me at Romans, 1, uh, excuse me, Romans 6, 1 through 4. And the reality of our union with Christ. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Again, he's echoing the logic of those who might think, well, if if sin makes grace look better, why not? Are we to do that? Is that how this works? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When someone becomes a Christian, when they give their lives to Christ, when they recognize, I'm a sinner, I've, I've let God down, I've disobeyed him, and, and Christ is my sufficient Savior and I'm trusting in him, when, when someone becomes a Christian... There is a decisive change in their identity. Paul summarizes the effect of that change in verse 2, that we have died to sin, and he asserts the reality of it in verses 3 through 4. If you're not convinced that something has changed, think about your baptism. Think about what that means, that in baptism we're united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And you'll notice you know, we, we've heard several parts of this chapter read a few times already this morning. And you'll notice the continual language of being united with Christ. Paul makes a really big deal of being united with Christ in this passage. And so what does that mean, to, to be united, to have union with Jesus? That's a, it's kind of an abstract concept, um, if we're honest. To be united with someone is obviously to have some sort of oneness with them. You know, you think United States of America, it's one nation. Or you think again of, of the marriage union, how the two become one. There's a, an element of oneness in that union. Well, here in Romans, being united with Christ means to share in Jesus' identity and work. 
to have union with him in, in his identity, in who he is, and in his work, what he's accomplished, to be united in those things. And so Jesus becomes our representative. He's our representative. What, who he is and what he does applies to us. We're no longer under Adam. If you go back a chapter and read through Romans 5, Paul puts this, con- this, this contra- contrast, I don't know, wherever you, however you say that word. Uh, he contrasts Adam and Christ as two different representatives of humanity. And Adam, who represents the fallen sinful humanity, that's one representative, and, and, and we no longer have union with him once we become a Christian. Instead, we have union with Christ, the representative of a new humanity, a redeemed humanity. And as our representative, we therefore share in and benefit from what Christ has accomplished. One author explains it this way. There is a, a union between Christ and Christians so that what happened to Christ is counted by God as happening to us. His death is our death. His resurrection, our resurrection. Uh, To use a rather uh, ridiculous illustration, uh, think about the way that we talk about our favorite sports teams. Okay, so if you, for whatever reason, happened to miss the AFC Championship game last Sunday... And you still hadn't heard the score when you got to work Monday morning or any news about the game. You didn't know about Deflate Gate or anything like that yet. And you were just kind of wondering how the game turned out. What's the question you're going to ask your colleagues when you walk in the door? Did we win? Did we win last night? To which they're going to respond, yes, we won. But what do you mean by we? I mean, were you out on the field? Did you play? Are you part of the team? Did you deflate the football? I mean, there's this sense that because of our allegiance, we have a union with the Patriots. What happens to them happens to us. When they win, we win. When they get ridiculed, we share in their scorn even though we don't contribute a blessed thing to how the game goes. We share in their identity and their work. Or to use Paul's imagery here in Romans 6, think of the baptism that we just witnessed this morning. What happened to Jesus, his death and resurrection, happens to us through faith. So as he died on the cross and went into the the tomb and rose again from the dead, so in baptism we go down into the watery grave and we rise in newness of life. It's a sign of our spiritual death and resurrection. But it's not the water that changes us. It's our union with Christ in his death and resurrection that changes us. We're changed by being united with him, by sharing in his identity and benefiting from his work. Listen again to how Paul phrases this in verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
So it's not just our death. No, we were baptized into his death. We share in what he did on the cross. We were buried, therefore, with him. When he went into the tomb, we went into the tomb with him. By baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so to be united with Christ is to share in his identity and to benefit and share in his work, what he's accomplished. And when we're united with him, there is a decisive change, therefore, in our identity, in who we are. We're not the same people that we once were. But what about that identity actually changes? What about us is different or new? What are the results of being united with Christ in his death and resurrection? Well, Paul explains the results of our union with Christ in verses 5 to 10. And he addresses both the effect of dying with Christ and rising or living with Christ. Those two things go together. If you you look at verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Or again in verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. So the two go together. But what are the results of it? What's actually different? Well, think first about what the results of Christ's death on the cross were. What is it that he accomplished when he died on the cross? Where do you start? I mean, there's so much that he accomplished on the cross. I mean, he showed us God's love. He reconciled us to his father. He bore his father's wrath against our sin and canceled the debt that we owed God. He paid for it in full. But here in in chapter 6, Paul has something very specific in mind. Christ died not just for sin, but to sin. Verses 6, excuse me, verses 9 and 10. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And so here's the logic. If Christ died to sin and we died with Christ, then we died to sin That's the main point Paul's trying to get across in this passage. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 2. And verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As a result of our union with Christ in his death, our identity is changed such that we are dead to sin. Now again... That's a pretty abstract idea. What in the world does that mean to be dead to sin? It takes a little bit to unravel Paul's logic sometimes. Well, let me tell you first what it doesn't mean, being dead to sin. It doesn't mean that it is now impossible for a Christian to sin. If that were the case, then most of what Paul says in his letters, not least Romans 7, would be unnecessary. Nor does it mean that sin no longer has any influence 
on a Christian. Again, if that's what he meant, then he could have just left out verses 12 through 14 here. There's no reason to give a command not to sin if you're dead to sin and that means it can't do anything to you. And so that's not what it means. So what does it mean? Notice the language of dominion in these verses, of reigning or ruling, of enslavement. And so the middle of verse 9, death no longer has dominion over Christ. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. And verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. And again, verse 12. Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make it obey your passions. And verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. I mean, how many different ways can Paul talk about the same idea of dominion and power and rule? Dying to sin doesn't mean it no longer influences us. It means that we are separated and have freedom from the rule of sin. That we're no longer slaves to it. Because before Christ, that's what we were. You know? without the Spirit of God in our lives, we can't help but sin in some ways and often. But in Christ, when our identity is changed, we die to sin. It no longer has mastery over us. We've been transferred from the dominion of sin, the reign of sin, into the reign of grace in Christ. Again, it doesn't mean that it can no longer influence you. But it does mean that you are no longer sin's slave. It can't force you to do anything anymore. If you're released from prison, the warden can still call you names and send you letters telling you what to do. But you are under no obligation to listen to him. Your identity has changed and that necessarily affects how you live. British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones illustrates it this way. He says, Consider two fields enclosed by high rock walls. And every person begins life in one of those fields, a field ruled over by Satan and sin. We have no chance of scaling the walls and escaping the field on our own. But God in his grace reaches down and takes us out of the Satan-dominated field and sets us down in the adjacent field, a field ruled by Christ and by righteousness. So a decisive change in our position has taken place. We're in a whole new relationship to sin. However, we can still hear Satan calling across the wall from the old field that we used to live in. And out of long habit, we sometimes still obey his voice, even though we don't have to. That's the picture of dying to sin through our union with Christ. Though we're still tempted, sin does not rule over us if we're in Christ because we have a new identity. We have 
power in Christ to say no. We no longer belong to sin's kingdom, but we've been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And there's only one way for that transfer to happen. Again, as Lloyd-Jones said, nobody could scale the wall. We must be saved by grace. The only way to be transferred from one dominion to the other is for the old man, the old self, who belongs to that old world, to die, to be crucified with Christ, and then to be born again as part of God's new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. The new has come. So being united with Christ is not about some sort of self-improvement. I'm just going to you know, work hard to clean my life up a little bit better and make things you know, better than they were. It is death and resurrection. Dying spiritually, being crucified with Christ, dying to sin, dying to my old self, dying to the fallen world that we live in, and a spiritual resurrection, being born again to a living hope in Christ. Not only with the promise of of a resurrection body like his when he returns, but with the power to walk in newness of life today through his spirit guided by his spirit, fueled by grace to the glory of God. That is your new identity. You are not who you once were. You are a new creation in Christ. He is your king. And so when God looks at you, he doesn't see the old sinful you, the you whose life was marked by Deception or shame or fear or failure or manipulation or any number of things. The you who was enslaved to sin. That's not what God sees when he looks at you now. When God looks at you, he sees his son. The son whom he loves. And he counts as what happened to his son. He counts what happened to his son as having happened to you. He counts his value for his son as his value for you. That's your new identity. That is who you truly are. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The result of being united with Christ in his death and resurrection is that we have died to sin and we now live to God. That's who you are. But Satan's voice can still be heard through the wall. Sin's temptation is still very real. And his lips are pressed against that wall whispering constantly. You don't really belong over there. You don't really think you're good enough for God to be in his kingdom. And you don't really think that he cares about what's best for you, do you? But think about everything you're going to miss out on 
in life if you follow him. And if you really think about it, God's going to forgive you anyway. That's what, that's what grace is for, right? And the greater the sin, the better you make God look. As long as we live out our days in this fallen world, we will continue to be tempted by the voices of our past. The voices of the world we once lived in, wooing us to live as though we were still enslaved to sin. Which makes it all the more important, not only to understand our new identity, but to apply it to life. And that's what Paul helps us do in the final verses, in verses 11 to 14. The response to our union with Christ. So in verses 12 to 13, Paul tells us what to do. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. You're no longer enslaved to sin. You don't have to treat it like it's still your master. Instead, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That's what we're called to do as part of God's new creation, to walk in the newness of life, which means joyful obedience, the freedom to obey God joyfully as his child. But the critical component of saying no to sin and yes to God is remembering who you are. Verses 12 to 13 tell us what to do, but verse 11 tells us how. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, it's one thing for God to tell us the reality of our new identity. And that's what Paul's been trying to get across. It's another thing to actually believe it. So there's the objective fact of who you are in Christ. And then there's me saying, yes, that's true. I believe that and I'm going to live according to it. And that's the critical component in our obedience. Remembering and believing that you are not who you once were. You are now a new creation. You're no longer a slave to sin. You have been set free in Christ. That can be very hard to believe sometimes. We still see ourselves as prisoners of sin. And we live accordingly. It's been well uh, well documented among former prisoners how hard it can be to transition to life after prison. Whether because of the institutional structure that you've come to habitually depend on or because of the the just culture of distrust and suspicion that that breeds there, or whether because of trauma or exploitation that you experienced while in prison. All sorts of reasons. It makes it hard to transition afterwards. And so people talk about living with a prisoner mentality. Though you're completely free, you've paid your dues to society, you still feel like and therefore live like you're in prison. That's what we do. I mean, think of ancient Israel in the wilderness. 
So God rescues them from slavery in Egypt. But 400 years of living as slaves is hard to forget overnight. And so though they have experienced a dramatic change in their identity, they've been rescued from slavery to Pharaoh and are now free to serve God, some of the Israelites preferred the old life of slavery when it came down to it because at least then they knew what to expect. Exodus 16.3 Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. It was so much better when we were in prison. But they acted the way that they did because they forgot who they were. So where are we tempted to lose sight of our new identity in Christ? And therefore to continue to live as a prisoner to sin. Where are you personally tempted? tempted to do that. I want you to think about it. If you had to pretend for a minute that you don't know Jesus, that you neither believe nor care anything of Christ, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? Now, of course, some of us maybe don't have to pretend. Maybe we, we don't know Jesus and, and we don't believe and we're just kind of exploring Christianity and trying to make sense of it, that's great. I'm I'm glad you're here and exploring with us, but I want you to answer the same question. When you look in the mirror, setting aside anything we know about God, who do you see? Who are you? Do you see someone who has it all together? Someone who's in charge, in control of their life, Someone others should be thankful to have on their team. Do you see someone who is scared to fail? Scared to be exposed? Someone who's doing their best to kind of white-knuckle it through life, but, but that their best never seems to be enough? Is that who you are? Do you see someone who's lonely, unwanted, unworthy of love? Someone who, if they were a little bit prettier or thinner or more talented, then then people might notice and then they might find kind of acceptance and security, but right now they're just alone. Do you see someone who's desperate? Desperate for change. Desperate for acceptance. Desperate for who knows what, as long as it's not the same thing as life now. Who are you? Think about what you see. And now think about the areas of your life where you most often find yourself tempted to continue in sin. To disobey God. Whether it's lust or pride or bitterness or envy. So think about those two things. Do you see any connection? If I see myself as a failure, which is what I often see, someone who's scared to fail and who feels like he's got to have it all together for everyone else. That's what I see in the mirror when I set God aside and just look at who I think I am. 
if that's who I am, then I shouldn't be surprised to find my life marked by anxiety and control. I need to succeed, otherwise people will see me for the failure that I know I am. And so we become control freaks, right? Anxious that everything goes our way, lest we look like a failure. And when we find ourselves losing that control, it's not uncommon to then turn our passion and attention to something else that we can control. That makes us feel like at least we're in charge of that part of life. Hitting the gym. Hitting the candy bars. Hitting the bottle. Hitting the porn. Hitting someone else. I have to succeed at life somehow. What's it going to be? Our identity shapes our behavior. If I see myself as someone who's unwanted or unlovely, if that's who I am, then that sense of identity is going to shape my behavior as well. Maybe I obsess over my image, striving to become somebody that I think people want me to be, or else discouraged and and increasingly numb under the realization that I'll never be what I think people want me to be. Maybe I act out in manipulation, trying to win attention or affection. Or I draw back because the pain of being rejected and ignored one more time is just not worth it. And so I'm just not going to go there. Maybe I latch on to someone who doesn't really treat me the way that I should be treated, but, but because they give me attention, I'll put up with it. Maybe my heart is so overtaken by jealousy and envy because everybody else's life at least seems to work out. Why not mine? Because I'm unwanted. I'm unlovely. That's who I am. But what difference would it make if each day I began to believe more and more the truth of who I am in Christ. That I'm dead to sin and alive to God regardless of what the mirror tells me. That I don't have to play by the rules of my former life because that's not who I am anymore. As one author reminds us, you are not what's been done to you but what Jesus has done for you. You are not what you do, but what Jesus has done. What you do doesn't determine who you are. Rather, who you are in Christ determines what you do. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Which means I'm not a failure. I'm a redeemed failure. I have messed up and I will continue, but I'm a redeemed failure and that's where the emphasis goes. And I don't have to chase after things that help me feel like I'm in control because Christ is in control. 
and he has succeeded for me. And so I am free to follow him. I'm not worthless or unlovable because even though I was dead in my sins and transgressions, Christ reached down and rescued me. He gave himself for me. And he accepts me because he bought me with his own blood. And so I don't have to go looking for acceptance and manipulating people or hiding from them because I am accepted in Jesus Christ. I don't belong to that old world anymore. I don't have to live by its rules. And nor should I want to. As John Stott says, Christians should no more contemplate a return to our old way of life than adults to their childhood, married people to their singleness, or discharged prisoners to their prison cell. For our union with Jesus Christ has severed us from the old life and committed us to the new. We have died and we have risen. How can we possibly live again in what we've died to? For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. That's what grace does. It doesn't give us permission to sin. It gives us the freedom to obey. Do you feel that freedom? Do you feel it when you look in the mirror? Do you know who you really are? What God really sees when he looks at you? If you belong to Jesus, you are united with him in his death and resurrection. You are dead to sin and alive to God. Believe it. Believe it. Consider yourselves that way. And find the freedom and joy of walking with God in the newness of life. That's what the gospel does in our hearts. Lord, I think of the man who came to your son asking to heal his child. Jesus said, if you believe, it will be done. And he responded, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And Lord, that is who we are so often when we think of our identity in Christ. I do believe. I agree that it's true. Help my unbelief. Help me really believe it when it comes down to living for you. And Lord, that's what we need. We need your spirit to give us clear eyes to see the truth of the gospel and to see ourselves caught up in that truth. That we are not who we once were, but we have been bought, we have been cleansed, we have been washed We belong to Christ. And that changes everything. God, help us walk and live and rejoice in the freedom that comes from that truth. We ask it in Jesus' powerful name.